You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, brought to you by Studio 420, a cannabis-friendly marketing agency. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, Marketing Director for Studio 420. Today we meet Corey Birchman, Chief Medical Officer at Acreage Holdings, a multi-state operator that was acquired by Canopy Growth in 2019. Corey is a nationally recognized expert on clinical cannabinoid therapeutics and has chaired multiple national conferences on the use of medical cannabis. He is an anesthesiologist and pain management physician with a career that spans over 35 years. We talked about everything from Corey's role in educating lawmakers in the medical community on the health benefits of cannabis, product innovation, his work with veterans, and the current research on cannabis as a treatment for serious diseases like cancer. This was a great discussion. Let's meet Corey. Hi there. Hey, Corey. How you doing? The internet here is, I won't say it's subpar, but... um... If, if we have any issues, I'll just make my phone a, a hotspot. Okay, okay. Um, okay, let's get started. Um, maybe we can just start with, if you could just tell us about your position as the uh, Chief Medical Officer at Acreage Holdings. Okay, sure. Uh, well, and, and thanks again for inviting me and, and giving me this opportunity. So I'm the Chief Medical Officer of Acreage Holdings, which is a uh, relatively large multi-state operator. I think we are, we were at one point in, in uh, 12 states. I think now we're in nine. And uh, obviously, uh, being the cannabis industry, it's a state-by-state uh, sort of entity, even though our headquarters is in is in New York City. And as I, I was affiliated with the privately held company that was the precursor to Acreage since 2010, and I can tell you a little later about how I evolved into a, sort of a cannabis domain uh, guy. And uh, but basically, uh, as the chief medical officer of Acreage, I'm responsible first and foremost for patient safety. I mean, we consider ourselves a pharmaceutical company in a sense, and and certainly through the pandemic, uh, we were considered a critical industry. So our our locations are all open to serve patients. Acreage as well has uh, where uh, applicable by law recreational adult use entities as well. But uh, I am a patient advocate and certainly revolve around our different states talking about. Uh, various aspects of the benefits of therapeutic cannabis and efficacy. A large part of my job is actually talking to legislators uh, in those various states, uh, either where referenda come up and we have yet to have a presence in those states, or more likely, and, and what I've been doing more so heavily, is education. And that's not only to state houses, but also to Capitol Hill, the White House, United Nations, the Veterans Administration. Uh, and I feel with my background as a, as a physician and, and a long history of talking to non-scientific groups, I feel very comfortable explaining complex scientific models such as drug uptake, physiology, and effectiveness of therapeutics to people who are not scientists. And I can speak 
in a language that is understandable, which has been very critical from the from the legislative standpoint, given that cannabis is a is a highly regulated uh, field and a Schedule One uh, narcotic, as they say, uh, according to the DEA at least, from a from a federal standpoint. So, uh, so pharmacovigilance is is sort of uh, one of my aspects in terms of uh, guaranteeing a safety, approving different formulations for patients. Uh, unfortunately, with the pandemic. Uh, I'm the only physician in this company of over a thousand people. I have been relegated to sort of a COVID physician, not so much in an occupational health uh, vantage point, but in terms of interpreting uh, CDC guidelines and various state and municipal uh, requirements for all of our locations, as well as uh, being actively involved in a coronavirus task force that my uh, company very appropriately assembled and uh, have been involved in contact tracing and identifying people at risk and exposure hazards and, and, and those, uh, those sorts of duties. And uh, I'm also part of the innovation team. Uh, as a physician, I used, I used to have a biomedical device company actually in Boston, which was outside of my, uh, my day job as an anesthesiologist at Dartmouth. And uh, I'm, so I'm, I'm keyed into sort of innovation and, and teamwork platforms and creating uh, new ideas and brainstorming. And I'm part of a relatively robust innovation pipeline within the, within the company. And we can talk a bit about that as, as this discussion goes on. Um, so do you think that the regulators and legislator, legislators, are they... Um... How knowledgeable are they about uh, the science behind cannabis? In well, my impression, it's, it's sort of across the board in terms of their level of uh, A, interest, B, uh, knowledge, and C, uh, determination to sort of, uh, you know, get the, get the football over the goal line, so to speak, and, and uh, get this off uh, Schedule 1 status. Uh, but there are some incredibly knowledgeable uh, legislators, both at the federal and state level. And there are those that their minds are still in the 60s where they regard uh, marijuana as a dangerous, addictive product that has no medical utility at all. And, and what I try to do, and, and this was a learning curve for me as well, because I'm used to talking to physicians uh, that have sort of a basis of of scientific understanding. And I think once one describes exactly what the endocannabinoid system is and how extensive it is and how intrinsic it is towards uh, what we call body homeostasis, it affects many, many different systems, as I'm sure you probably know. Un unlike the science-based adult individual, uh, legislators, uh, some are extremely reticent to accept facts. Obviously, this carries over to other issues in the political landscape of the day, but very much so in cannabis as well. And uh, I can't force uh, logic and knowledge upon certain people. I can only lay lay out facts. One of the it's one of the interesting uh, things I talk about. I have I I, I I do a fair number of public speaking engagements, and one of the first things that almost every legislator. Pam 
says to me is, where's the research? There is no research on cannabis. Uh, or, or tell me, how come I haven't heard about the research? And, and then I go into a 20-minute, uh, I won't say exhaustive, but explanation of, of uh, you know, the National Library of Medicine a database where there are uh, over 40,000 40, peer-reviewed articles in that database uh, on, on cannabis. And that represents the best curated uh, peer-reviewed uh, documents in the in the biomedical landscape, and and I I I sort of play this little game uh, and and mention that uh, the research papers on marijuana equal don't don't exceed or are not less but equal the sum of the amount of research on Tylenol, Xanax, and Humira. Humira I picked because it's the number one selling drug in America. At twenty-two billion dollars, uh, if you add up the all the research that's been done on those three, and Tylenol has been around since the eighteen seventies, okay. Uh, so it's and and they they think I'm, I'll, I'll just say they think I'm BSing and I'm, I'm making data up, but I speak from uh, you know I speak from a standpoint of strength about you know sort of what the medical database is like. No, no, they're not. Oh, that's, that's a great question. But no, they're not. Um, some of them are animal studies. Some of them are uh, tissue, you know, in vitro studies where we're looking at cells. Some of them are review papers, which means they're meta-analyses or they are studies of studies. And, uh, and, and there are human trials as well. Uh, interestingly, there are about, out of the 40,000 uh, research papers that are, are, and this is this is accurate as of last month. There are about 150 uh, what we call randomized controlled trials. These are double-blind crossover studies. These are really good. These are the kinds of studies that the FDA wants to prove that a treatment is valid or not valid. And and so a randomized controlled trial is sort of the gold standard. They're very expensive to do, but there are 150. For cannabis now, out of forty thousand papers, one hundred and fifty does not seem like a lot, and I would I would agree it doesn't. But th this is a really interesting in, in twenty seventeen that did a really interesting study, and they looked at the number of randomized controlled trials that the FDA likes to see before they approve a new drug. So let's say you're a researcher from a pharmaceutical company and you have a new drug and you want to go for FDA approval. Uh, this team in Yale published this great study and it turns out that the average number of clinical trials for a novel drug before it's FDA approved is actually two, just two. And mm -hmm. uh, in 40% of the, the studies they looked at, only one randomized control trial was done. So when you put it in that context, Pam, uh, 150 clinical trials is a, is a boatload of studies. And uh, I like to say is that, uh, you know, cannabis has been in continuous use for over 5,000 years. And it's been, it's, it's actually functionally been engaged in the longest clinical trial in recorded human history. Uh, truly, truly. 
And so from a safety standpoint, I mean, there are obviously um, some harms that can occur with any pharmacologically active agent. But in terms of safety and, and effectiveness for certain medical conditions, it's a really, really strong case towards legalization, which is one thing, obviously, I've been, uh, been trying to uh, lend support from the legislative standpoint. Mm, yeah, you know, even if it is animal studies, that still shows promise for the uh, effects of cannabis as a medicine. Yeah, of course, of course. Every every drug that we have in our in our arsenal, the the uh, conventional drugs, all of those had to undergo animal testing initially. There are very very promising animal studies, uh, inflammation and cancer. Cancer is a very hot topic. It's something I talk a lot about because cancer, uh, cancer is a form of inflammation in, in the sense that the the uh, the immunologic system of the body has has gone awry as one of the major reasons that cells uh, have restricted uh, growth and and uh, reproduce wildly, which is in fact what neoplasia is. But uh, the animal studies on certain cancers with respect to treatment by cannabis products, not necessarily THC or CBD, but other cannabinoids as well, in terms of uh, limiting uh, cell growth, uh, limiting the blood flow, uh, that's called the anti-angiogenic aspects of, of cancer chemotherapy, and, and reducing uh, metastatic uh, activity in, in certain uh, you know, uncontrolled cells. And, and there are really solid, uh, very promising animal studies, which will sort of push us to do uh, more human research, although that is fraught with difficulty logistically as well. That's one of the problems with the federal sort of blockade on cannabis from the federal standpoint. Lots of research institutions would love to get their hands on research-grade cannabis and do clinical studies, but you need a you need what's called a Schedule One research license, which is fairly problematic to get, and uh, a lot of institutions don't want to touch it because they fear that their federal uh, funding, either through Medicare or uh, NIH grants, will be suspended, and that's that's the big fear. That's probably the largest aspect of of reluctance by bona fide researchers to do this. Now, certainly in other countries, such as Israel, which is a which is sort of ground zero for uh, cannabis research, uh, other other foreign uh, entities as well. But Israel has a strong history in this in this domain. Right, right. Do you know which cannabinoids um, are proving to be effective in cancer treatment? Like the the research that they're doing on that now. Well. Uh, so first of all, cancer is a is, is a huge subject, and there are right. hundreds of types of cancers uh, that present differently with different sort of mechanisms. Uh, I'll say right off the bat uh, that THC is is a very excellent adjunct to cancer chemotherapy for obvious reasons. It's an antiemetic, which means it it prevents or suppresses nausea. It's an analgesic. Uh, and there's very good scientific data as to the effectiveness of, of uh, THC as, as a pain reliever. And it is an appetite stimulant. 
and for many patients on conventional cancer chemotherapy, the triad of appetite stimulation, pain control, and anti-nausea is really excellent. And many oncologists across the country embrace uh, utilizing uh, cannabis, primarily via THC, to, uh, to mitigate some of the problems of just their therapy. Now, if we're talking about uh, some of those other aspects of reducing cancer in terms of uh, limiting metastatic disease or reducing tumor size, uh, there are some synthetic forms of cannabinoids, you know, what I'll say is uh, that are isomers or cousins of THC, but it's all very preliminary. And one, one of the most common questions I get are anecdotal stories that, you know, my cousin had breast cancer and she used, um, you know, uh, Rick Simpson oil, which is a highly concentrated form of, uh, of cannabis oil and, uh, and, and had significant improvement. And I won't refute it, but I can't support it because the, the research just isn't there yet. Right, right, right. Are doctors receptive to cannabinoid medicine? I, uh, any doctors that you're meeting? I mean, we really need doctors on board to really um, lend trust to cannabis as a medicine. And sure, sure. In the early in the early two thousands, I would say that about fifteen to twenty percent of physicians, uh, by survey, and I'm talking general practitioners, surgeons, uh, anal, you know, uh, pain, pain docs. Uh, neurologists, only about 15% uh, were either suggesting cannabis as, a, as an addition to some of their patients or as, as a therapy, even, even up for discussion. But that has grown to about 50 to 60%, which I think, I think is remarkable in, in 15 years' time. Uh, but there are some physicians, just like some legislators, that just have this bias against cannabis, possibly from the 70s when it was labeled a gateway drug and, and they don't really understand that, 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 that old theory has been refuted. And there are, there are you know, aspects of, of the medical field that are totally closed. And, but that doesn't mean we can't stop beating the drum and spreading the, net, the message. And I think it's very important and uh, I'll probably I'll probably get some hate mail for saying this, but there are there are um, there are proponents of cannabis that that they the message is right, but the delivery of the message is not. Uh, I think you have to when you when you speak to these large organizations, whether it's uh, the American Association of of uh, Oncologists or, or uh, pain management practitioners or neurologists, you have to come with some credibility. You, you need to, and I, I hate to say this, but you need to look the part as a credible uh, physician, primarily a physician, but not necessarily, uh, because there are some, uh, there are some you know, civilians and some uh, PhD researchers, as well as uh, just very knowledgeable people, but the message has to be delivered in a way that they recognize your credibility. I think that's really important. So doctors teaching doctors. Right, I, I think so, but I don't, 
but well, yeah, but I but there other than physician, I mean, there are wonderful cannabis nurses out there. Oh. There are there are cannabis practitioners that don't have formal degrees that I'm blown away by the their level of knowledge, current knowledge, and I really respect people that 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 you know want to curate and 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 profess uh, peer-reviewed data and and remarkable things. I mean, anecdotes, Pam, are wonderful and they 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 can stir us their stories and as human beings we relate much better to stories than to data uh when when i do like medical presentations i always start off with a case study where, where i'll just talk and this isn't about cannabis let's just say this is about some other medical thing uh you, you'll talk about an individual who has a trauma and and how we get that person through the trauma and what drugs we used and what rehabilitation aspects we use. And when you when you tell a story, people can relate to it. And it's it's much more impressionable than me just standing up there with PowerPoints talking about, you know, 85% of the patients in this group uh, responded to this drug. And while that's data, and that's very, very important, and that's what people want to hear who are... Uh, conforming rules and regulations about, about therapies. But I, the anecdotes are, are important too. And what they should do is then push us to ask the kinds of questions. Okay, if, if, uh, if I talk to five people and they all had Parkinson's disease and now they have much less spasticity and much less pain and they're sleeping better at night because they're using Ten to fifteen milligrams of THC an hour before bed. That's very compelling, uh, but that that in itself does not mean that as a as a rehab physician or as a neurologist I should be prescribing or not prescribing but recommending cannabis to all my patients. But again, the anecdotes are important. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, you mentioned that that you're also on the innovation team at at Acreage. You know what kind of products are you producing or in the pipeline? Are you really looking at? I think we have a lot of work to do, but just curious what, what's going on in innovation at Acreage. Well, uh, I, can't, I can't sort of give away any secrets oh, yeah. because uh, things, are, things are sort of in the pipeline and in development. Uh, but I will say that, uh, I won't say we, but I think the industry as a whole is is a little stuck and they're stuck in in formulations right now there are there's flour that can be smoked there are edibles that can be consumed orally there are tinctures that can be absorbed under the tongue there are topical agents now as an anesthesiologist and a drug guy that understands drug administration and distribution there are other avenues for drug administration, uh, and I'm not talking about intravenous administration. Uh, there are other avenues that are not uh, not even being approached yet, and those could be considered disruptive. And uh, so one of one of the uh, areas we're looking at are novel formulations for administration. So that's that's one way of of uh, of innovating a new a new uh, product. And the other is what other cannabinoids and terpenes and combinations uh, within the plant uh, strike 
gold in terms of targeting certain conditions. Uh, the, the number one reason that medical patients, as well as adult use patients, uh, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't like to classify users as medical users or adult users. They're all users. And the vast majority, Pam, of people who use cannabis use it for some therapeutic benefit, whether it's uh, uh, getting a solid night's sleep, whether it's to chill and relax and, and you know, ease anxiety, or to combat pain. Those are sort of the big three. Uh, and it's, it's very important to understand that this, this product, this plant, has probably 150 uh, different cannabinoids, of which we only know about uh, maybe 18. Uh, and even of that, most people can only name THC and CBD. But my point is, all of these, all 150 of these, have receptors in the body specific receptors. And so they are pharmacologically active. And that doesn't even begin to talk about the terpenes of which they're, you know, the, the, the plant esters that uh, give flavor and, and, uh, and, and uh, odor, uh, aroma to, to uh, botanical products. All of these have pharmacologic properties. And so part of innovation is in identifying uh, which of these cannabinoids can be produced commercially, and and can they be effective for certain ailments or or, or just promoting wellness? Uh, if they if they if they allow people uh, to to and I'm not talking about euphoria, I'm not talking about getting high, but there are there are definite uplifting uh, aspects to certain combinations of terpenes and cannabinoids that can improve performance, can improve recovery after exercise. I wrote a grant uh, a couple of, maybe a year ago, I think the NFL was uh, soliciting uh, ideas for grants and they were, uh, they were issuing $1 million grants to 10, to 10 uh, institutions. And so I built a team up of rock stars in the field. And I was very excited. We had a really interesting study about uh, uh, combating inflammation, you, uh, dr actually drawing blood on NFL football players before and after football games, uh, looking at biomarkers of inflammation, which is a surrogate for uh, muscle injury, for example, and seeing if, if cannabis products, primarily CBD, non-psychogenic non products, could improve and, and limit inflammation. But we, we, didn't get the, uh, we didn't get the grant. And, and, you know, I'm not saying it was great because I had a part in it. It was just a, I had actually a really small role, but I sort of put the team together. Uh, it's such an exciting uh, approach that I've shopped it around to a couple of uh, academic institutions. And there's one that I really can't mention right now that's taking a real interest in it. And so it's, it's pretty exciting stuff. So you, you, you test them before they play and then after they play? Yeah, well, ac uh, athletic competition at a high level, not even necessarily at a high level, is, is basically tr trauma, certainly in any contact sport. I mean, and if you talk to these football players, um, you know, sort of un under, under the radar, uh, many, many uh, are using cannabinoids for, for recovery, uh, for pain control as well as uh, anti-inflammatory properties. And so uh, with any elite athlete or even your, your weekend warrior, uh, if you, if you pre-treat with really uh, 
effective anti-inflammatory medicines, you can modulate the soreness and improve recovery. And there are some non-psychogenic, you know, non-psychoactive cannabinoids, uh, you know, THC-8, called the acidified um, component of THC, but it's an inflammatory agent. And in fact, it's so good, there are patents now that are being filed to use, and, and it is as effective and as potent as some of the non-steroid ibuprofen. But it doesn't affect the kidneys, it doesn't affect uh, bleeding. And, uh, and I would venture to say, know, knowing, uh, knowing a little bit about the development of this drug line, that this will be in a pharmacy in uh, probably a number of years. Yeah, THCA. I've heard a lot about THCA and, and some companies selling it in powder form and saying it's, it's, it's very, very powerful. Right, right. Well, you know, the, the manufacturers and, uh, and the marketing is just a little bit, not necessarily with THCA because there's really, really good research about it, but uh, sometimes the headlines get ahead of the data. And uh, that can be a problem. And that can certainly turn off physicians that need to get on board and embrace some of these modalities. And also for the, you know, for the consumers, it, it's, we don't want to give them the wrong impression of what works, what doesn't work. Right, right. Make sure. Well, you know, it's, it's, this is such an unusual industry because we're dealing with a plant that has, uh, obviously some pretty strong medicinal qualities and, and people, you know, a little like alcohol, it, it's a, it's an intoxicant as well, at least certain aspects of it, which makes it popular for an entirely different non-medical reason. But the point is this is, it, it's, and it's a moving target laws that are affecting its, uh, its dispensing and, and how it can be used and uh, new research is, is being produced weekly about some of its indications. And it's a little bit, Pam, of the Wild West where this, you know, CBN is, is uh, purported to be an excellent uh, adjunct to, to sleep. And the, the, the data on that is, is not really solid, but that doesn't stop marketers uh, from, you know, it's not an FDA approved drug. And so, uh, they can lay lots of health claims that don't particularly have validity. Right, I know it's 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 tricky right now, and I I hope we uh, everything catches up because um, there's such potential here, and it's such a great industry. I I hope we don't ruin it. Um, so just on the fun side here, I know that you're also um, a bit of an inventor, and you were experimenting with creating um, THC infused beverages. I just wanted to see how that was going or what you're finding in that. It's really cool. So, you know, obviously, obviously THC is an oil, so it doesn't really mix that well with uh, liquid with respect to uh, certain processes where it can be emulsified in a very, very uh, fine way, sort of like homogenized. Uh, it can be then mixed with water soluble solutions like fruit juices and sugar. And uh, I, have a, I have a very close friend who is getting a, uh, an adult use dispensary in Vermont and I live on the border and, and uh, we, we talk a lot. And so I went out and bought uh, a gram of, 
liquid uh, THC, which is highly concentrated. And I just started fooling around. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a mixologist. I really like cocktails, uh, not in a, in a way where I, you know, drink to the point of being drunk, but I just think it's kind of cool for, uh, you know, at the end of a day or the end of a week to have a little happy hour. And conventionally alcohol is, is used. I'm not a big alcohol consumer. I'm not even a big cannabis consumer, but I just was fascinated by the sort of the mixology of it. And so I just started experiment. I, you know, I went online, I bought uh, an alcohol-free bourbon and gin and Campari equivalent, you know, like a botanical red ball. Uh, and they taste pretty good, but they're all sort of botanicals. And I will mix them up in various combinations with lemon or lime juice and like, like a Manhattan or, a, you know, a, a whiskey sour, but n no whiskey. And then I'll add, you know, five milligrams of, of THC. And it's emulsified in a way that the, the onset is very similar to alcohol. You know, within 10 minutes, you start to feel an effect. You know, now everything is, you know, I'm an anesthesiologist. So I'm all about doses and I don't want to get anybody stoned, but just a little buzz like you would get from a couple of glasses of wine. And it's very, it's obviously I'm just doing it as a hobby, but it's very popular. Uh, I have a couple of friends and we're all sort of in a cocktail club and I'll show them this and they're all really interested. And, uh, some of them can't really buy because of the kinds of jobs they have, but, but it's a really cool it's a cool gig, and and in Vermont they're going to eventually have these consumption lounges, and I think, I think that you know sort of the cannabis cocktail will come. Beverages, incidentally, are 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 becoming a big thing right now, but they're basically fizzy water, you know, sort of like white claw equivalents on the cannabis side. And I'm not I'm not denigrating them; they may be quite popular, but certain states have limits on to the, as to the amount of THC and what other cannabinoids can be put in them. But it's kind of a cool sort of mixologist uh, hobby. That's cool. And, and you know, I haven't seen the, the bourbon equivalent or the gin equivalent of the drinks, which would be more appealing to me than those fizzy drinks that you're right, talking right, about. Right, right. We're talking of more, maybe a more sophisticated, less sweet palate. Uh, you know, a true, yes. a true sippable cocktail that doesn't taste like crap. Uh, and they don't. I mean, they they really. Or sugar. Don't. I'll, uh, offline, I'll send you some pictures and 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 recipes. I think you'll appreciate it. Oh yeah, I mean, I I can't wait for the day that I can sit down and have a vodka on the rocks that isn't alcohol based, but it's THC based, because right. I do. You right. Know, and then alcohol is a toxin. And one of my friends, you know, I, as a physician for thirty some years, one of my friends is a is a hepatologist. She's an expert in in liver disease. And she told me once that if you uh, if you were to drink even one drink, and then you were to draw blood immediately, you would start to see uh, evidence of destruction of liver cells. Now that's not I know that sounds dramatic, but the liver is a hugely regenerative organ, and there are liver cells that die every minute, but they get regenerated. But interestingly, if you just have one cocktail. Uh, you will see a spike in the products of liver cellular uh, metabolic abnormalities. And so alcohol is probably not the best. Look, alcohol has been around for as long as humans have roamed the earth. And they discovered that, you know, fermented, it's probably not that healthy. I, wouldn't, I would not consider alcohol a wellness drink, but 
interestingly, some of these cannabis beverages, I could see them as a sort of wellness supplement. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I can't wait. So I know we were, I think we're running out of time and I've been keeping you and I know you're busy, but I had so many questions, but I think I'll uh, wind it down to, um, I know you're giving a lecture at Yale Nursing School um, coming up and just wanted to hear what, what you'll be talking about at the, at the nursing school. Yeah, I don't think it's a nursing school, but there's a cannabis nurses uh, symposium that's being held in New Haven uh, this Saturday. And uh, I think I'm giving like one of the luncheon addresses and it's, a, it's one of my favorite talks and I like, to, I like to rework it every time I give it, but it's, it's on things they do not tell you about cannabis. And, and, and the, the subheading is uh, navigating the minefield of cannabis misinformation. And what I do is pick First of all, I, I show maybe 20 different screenshots that I take off, off you know, social media or online about cannabis cured my cancer, cannabis is a gateway drug, cannabis will make you crazy, cannabis is harmless. And then I, I, I pick maybe a half a dozen of those bombastic headlines. And then I go into the research as to, well, is this really true? And, and what does the research say? And it's, so it's a really sort of interesting uh, probing into the the truth behind the headlines and uh, and 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 then I also talk about well what what do you need to read just because somebody quotes a study that doesn't even mean the study is valid and what does a person need to know to recognize that this study is either bullshit or or it's the real deal and sometimes even even researchers have a hard time deciding. I talk about something called the, the dilemma of conflicting conclusions, where one group from Boston College says that uh, you know, cannabis is, is okay for dementia. It's really interesting how it, how it improves certain dementia patients. And then another group from Harvard said, you know, they did a study and they looked at 2,300 papers and there's no effect on dementia at all. And so how possibly can the public understand and navigate any of that if even the people who devote their lives towards research can't agree? That's the reality of research. And then the only thing I try to point out is how to validly accept uh, or, or reject data because I understand what's behind the headline if they wanna, if they wanna make you know, the right call. And now this is a this primarily is a medical talk uh, geared towards medical practitioners, but I do a version of it for you know non-medical people, and uh, but they come away with sort of the same goods, which is which is what I want. Yeah, I can see. Yeah, yeah. Okay, actually, this really this is the last question because I, I know that you do a lot of work um, with uh, veterans, and that you also served um, in the Navy for thirteen years. Um, can you just tell us what's new on the front with veterans and? Well, sure. Uh, well, it's it's a bit of a struggle, but you know, veterans. Uh, a lot of veterans use cannabis. Um, I mean, I'm involved pretty uh, solidly with a with a large group out of Texas called Hemp for Victory, and uh, the the object is to obviously uh, approve or at least uh, assist the VA in allowing veterans safe access to cannabis. Uh, 
not only for PTSD, which is a huge problem, but tens of thousands of veterans uh, employ cannabis uh, primarily to relieve PTSD. And there's some actual really good research data demonstrating how cannabis can improve the diminishing recurrent nightmares. It, cannabis can act in certain parts of the limbic system, which is an area of the brain where memory processing occurs. And uh, so there are some valid, so the anecdotes of the veterans saying, oh my gosh, this weed has saved my life. Otherwise I was gonna kill myself and stay in bed all day. And now they lead productive lives. There are all of those anecdotes, but there's a lot of research to support that it actually works. So we we talked to the VA and we I've talked to the head of VA research about some of the uh, important findings uh, that that substantiate its use. And again, the mission is to just get the VA to authorize and assist these veterans so they don't have to go outside the system or they don't have to hide the fact that they're using cannabis. Although that has improved and and now at least they can talk to their veteran doctors, about, you know, the VA doctors about cannabis and not lose their benefits, which was a which was one of their major fears. Yeah, boy, I can't wait till that gets approved and they're on board with that. That's so important. Well, anyway, thank you so much, Corey. It was really great talking to you. I really appreciate you. Well, let's uh, let's uh, make a date in the future and 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 continue the conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I look forward to I, I look forward to seeing it out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season 1 of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.